Have you ever had something hyped up, overplayed for you? Maybe a, maybe a movie. Somebody says, this is the best, it's the greatest, you're going to love it, it's incredible, it's the best thing I've ever seen. And you're watching it and you're like, I'm trying to love it, but I kind of like it. Uh, or maybe it's food. Oh my goodness, you have to try this place. I'm so serious. You have to try it. It's going to change your life. And then you go and you're eating it and you're like, yeah, it's good. Like, it's definitely good. But it was just... It got over, overplayed. It, it, didn't, it didn't deliver. It's like uh, some of you may remember when you used to get toys and cereal boxes. You know, those were always like, oh, I, this looked way more exciting on the commercial. You know? And uh, I expected more. Ecclesiastes is a book that really reads like a philosophical response to overhyped things. Things that are uh, overpromising and underdelivering on the meaning of life on joy, lasting sense of, uh, of fulfillment. Today our text is Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and it's the final chapter where Solomon, the author, is giving his concluding arguments to a book that really provokes us to consider what gives true meaning and lasting joy in life, in light of the fact that globally speaking, life is short and it's often very hard. And so the question really is, is the anchor of our hope latched onto something of real substance, offering hope and meaning and actually able to deliver on that? Or is the object of our hope something that's small and temporal, over-promising, under-delivering, which in the end is like the wind that refreshes you one minute and then it's gone the next? Ecclesiastes chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before difficult days come and the years draw near, with which you'll say, I have no pleasure in my days. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return again after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the daughters of song are brought low. And they're afraid of what is high, and the terrors are in the way. And the almond trees blossom, and the grasshopper drags itself along. And desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel is broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is meaningless. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and upright and wrote the words of truth. And the, gods, and the words of the wise are like the goads, and nails fixed firmly are the collected sayings, and they're given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Here's the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, even the secret things, whether good or evil. This is God's word. Now this passage is Solomon's big exclamation point on his book. 
kind of like a philosophical study guide for considering the meaning of life. And for 12 chapters, he's, ex- he's exploring the meaning, and he's really looking at everything in light of inevitable death. And you'd say, well, that's such a downer. You know, and it's true. I mean, the tone of Ecclesiastes in and of itself is, is depressing. But when we look at the book of Ecclesiastes through the hope of the gospel and, and Christ's cross and the resurrection, it's not depressing but liberating because it's really provoking us to consider what really matters if in the end there's only this thing called death. And that's, that's, that's how uh, Solomon frames his book. And so as he's thinking about it, he realizes... Oh my goodness, if there's, not, if there's no God, then there's not enough aspirin in the world for a meaning of life-sized headache. Because everything is, in the end, going to be erased. So he, he, he goes through uh, the book considering things in this light and in this way. And so no matter what he tries, he tries pleasure and he tries vocation and achievement and wisdom. He tries absolutely everything and he, and he describes it as chasing the wind because he says, uh, you know, it's here one moment and it's, it's gone the next. And it all ended up not really fulfilling him. It was kind of like drinking sand in the desert because his mortality was spoiling his fun. And, and so what this book provokes us to do is to be thoughtful people. Because if the way that you have joy in your heart is to not think about your mortality and to essentially go, let's bracket that out, then you don't, what you're hoping in isn't actually a true anchor. It's really a distraction. What the Christian faith is the opposite of that. The Christian faith enables us to think very deeply about our own mortality. And actually, it doesn't erode our joy. It actually causes our joy to increase. Because the culmination of Solomon's argument is this. If there's no God, then time is stripping away all good things. But if there is a God, then in time, God is going to restore all good things. So in the Christian worldview, you're able to think very deeply about your mortality without getting depressed about it, which is why the book is so provoking and doesn't shy away from any questions. So chapter 12 reads this chapter that we just read. It reads a little bit like a series finale. And, it's, and he's, as he goes through these descriptors, which I'm going to unpack in a minute, it feels quite a bit like, and now the series finale of Vanity of Vanities, as he begins to unpack what it means to be old. And uh, which is precisely what he does. In fact, he, he unfolds numeric, numerous poetic expressions like a tablecloth so we can all sit down and chew on what it means uh, to get old. And he does it in, in an incredible, incredible way. So let's unpack this for a minute so we understand what the text means before we look at how Christ has fulfilled this and how we live in light of it. So Solomon is using all these striking, provoking pictures to talk about getting old. In verse 2, he says, the sun and the moon and the stars are being darkened. That's a way of saying your eyes are growing dark. The sun and the moon and the stars aren't actually getting dark. You're getting old and, and your vision is failing you. This is, the, this is what the Hebrew, Hebrew poetic advice, uh, device is provoking. Right? He goes on to say the clouds return after the rain. So it just finished raining and now the clouds return. And then it rains again and then the clouds return. And the rain, that's, that's a way of saying when you get old, your body seems to go from one ailment to the next. Right? It's like when we all understand the trope. And then as we get old, we become the trope, right? When we were young uh, and spry, we were like, oh, it's, it's so funny how old people always talk about their bodies. And then you start to get old and you realize you start talking about your body. Because when you're young and people say, you know, how are you doing? If you happen to be lucky enough, you know, in the gene pool to luck out and have good health, then your answer for a lot of years was, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. But that's not everybody's story. That's not even most people's story. And so for most people, you're like, how are you doing? The answer to how they're doing is a big, long litany of, the clouds rolling in, and then after that, 
physical ailment is gone, another one rolls in. So that's what that means. So he says, he says this is kind of what it's like. You get seized by one thing after the next. Verse 3 says the keepers of the house tremble. That's a way of saying your body becomes frail and you kind of get shaky as you get old. He says strong men are bent. So it's a way of saying you get hunched over. I had a relative who was about 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, but as he got older, I would look at him. I would actually look down at him. He was so hunched over. I'm 5'9". He was shorter than I was. This is what happens in our old age. And so Solomon doesn't shy away from it. He keeps on giving these descriptors. He says um, in verse 4, when the doors are shut in the streets. It's an interesting image of getting old. The doors are shut in the streets. Well, it's interesting because in the ancient uh, region where this was written, your doors were always open to the streets. And in many cultures today, your doors are open to the streets. People are actually out sitting on their porches all the time. They're cooking and they're doing things outside all the time. It's very communal. It's like your door was open to the streets. Hospitality, friends, parties, people. You get old, I don't have the energy. The door is shut to the streets. That's what it means. I, you know, it's like I, I just don't feel up to it. You know, it's like when you're young, your tone was, oh man, there's nothing on this weekend. And then when you get old, you're like, there's nothing on this weekend. That's what happens to us. When you're young and your plans get canceled, you start texting your friends. You're like, where are we dropping, boys? But when you're old and your plan, you get a text and someone cancels your plans, it's like a little shot of endorphins. It's like you just won the Snorfest sweepstakes. Whoa, look at this, honey. Plans are canceled. Yeah, that's what happens. All the young people in here, you're like, this preacher's so old. He doesn't even get it. Oh, yes, I do. You don't even get it. Okay, so so that's what it means. The doors are shut to the streets. Verse 5, the almond tree blossoms. When an almond tree blossoms, it turns white, like a big white afro. What does that remind you of? When you get old, your hair turns white, and you look like the almond tree in bloom. Right? Unless you dye your hair, then you look like a blueberry bush, and that's been known to happen. But the, to be true to this text, I did the research. And I need you to know, you, look, you should look like an almond tree in bloom, not a blueberry tree in bloom. But anyways, that, that's not the gospel, so you don't have to listen to that. So, this is what it means. And the point is this, that an almond tree, um, it actually blooms faster than all the other trees around it. So, the reason why this tree is picked is because old age comes upon us faster than we thought. All of us who are getting older, we're like, yeah, that's true. And you kids, you're so young. You're so young, you don't understand that. But here's, here's what maybe you would understand. How many of you kids have had somebody who hasn't seen you for like a month, and then they come by, they, they, they say, oh my goodness, you're getting so big. Remember said that to you? Because guess what? You're getting so big. Faster than you think. That's what the text means. It's like it comes upon us, right? It comes faster than you think. It's like when a kid you babysat is going to college and you hear about it. You're like, whoa. I can't believe I'm getting old. Or you get up out of the couch and you make a sound as you get up. You're like, oh. <laughs> uh, almond tree is blossoming in your life. Okay, that's what that means. So he goes on and he gives perhaps the most creative, creative literary description of getting old I've ever read. Kids look down on your notes. See that picture of the grasshopper there? See that? See that little guy? He says... This is what it's like to get old. The grasshopper drags itself along. Kids, how do grasshoppers get around? How do grasshoppers get around? Who's who's buried in King Tut's tomb? 
They hop. Yeah, right, exactly. They hop around. And uh, what an image. Solomon is saying there's a day coming, you little grasshoppers, where you're going to drag yourself along. And I just read that and I thought, what a, what a fantastic image. I used to hop. I was great at hopping. When I was spry, if it wasn't for this trick hind leg, I could have gone pro. It's just... And so he's going through all of these descriptors of getting old. And then have you ever um, been in a group of people and people are making jokes or talking about things and then somebody takes it to the next level and the whole room goes, oh! Guess what Solomon does? That exact thing. He's talking about getting old. He's like, think about it, think about it, think about it. You notice how this whole thing started. He says to the young man, Solomon had a son. His name was Rehoboam. Rehoboam was not wise. Solomon was very wise. Everything that Solomon wrote was not... um, intended narrowly for Rehoboam, but it did absolutely apply to Rehoboam. So you've got this kind of my son thing going on in a lot of Solomon's writing. And his son was young and, and, and foolish. And so Solomon is provoking this thing about getting old and thinking about life and thinking about mortality. And then Solomon takes it next level. He makes all the young people go, oh. And this is what he says. He, go, he goes, um, he says in verse 5, when desire fails, and when you read this in the Hebrew, the word desire in the Hebrew is which is an aphrodisiac. And he goes, you know, a day is going to come when your aphrodisiacs don't even work, guys. And all of the young people who were asleep for 12 chapters are like, wait, what? Uh, hold on. And he's got everybody's attention now. That's what he does. The whole room goes, oh, and then in verse 6, he gives these, these analogies for death. We say things like, went on to a better place, passed away, passed on, bought the farm. We've got these terms. I mean, you wouldn't say that at a funeral. That's, in, that's, that's, not, that's not very uh, considerate. But these are the euphemisms we use. And what does Solomon do? He's got a litany of them there in front of you. Hey, one day when the silver cord breaks and the gold bowl smashes and the wheel's broken at the cistern and the pitcher's, pitcher's broken, that's all death. You know why he does that? Because these are all shiny, useful things. Silver cord, ooh, golden bowl, ah, pitcher, useful, wheel at the cistern, useful. He's like, one day that's broken, that's broken, that's broken, that's broken. And this is how he ends his book. This is how he ends the treatise. He says, do you want to be a thoughtful person? Do you want to be a thoughtful person who thinks about where your life is headed and have joy in your heart? Or do you want to be like a philosophical ostrich and stick your head in the sand and say, just give me another drink, I don't want to think about it. And Solomon's provoking us to think about it. Because there is a hope and a joy that is available while you're deeply thinking about it. And the reason why we need this, church, all of us today, is because all of us live lives where we very much need the joy in the midst of frustration and pain and suffering and old age and the things that come with it, loved ones going into old age and the things that come with it, so that we can find a prevailing sense of rest in all of this. And so in verse 6, he writes the world-renowned sobering words that are spoken at funerals everywhere, and he says, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. And then the book ends with some very wise words. Like, literally, the very end of the book ends with wise words. They're not comforting words in and of themselves. They're not comforting words, but they're wise words. They can be comforting words, and we're going to unpack that in a minute. But here they are in verse 13 and 14. They instruct us saying, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of mankind. 
For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, if it were not for Jesus Christ and his grace, these words would crush you and condemn you. But because your faith is in Jesus Christ, church, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, these words are actually a faithful guide for you. These words are an appeal, they're an appeal to reason and logic and wisdom. See, he's thinking about life. He's thinking about the universe. He's saying, if there is no God, it makes no difference how you live. It makes no difference what guides your life. It makes no difference where you turn to extract a sense of meaning or fulfillment. It doesn't matter. If, we're, if you're passing on into a state of non-existence and nothingness, it doesn't matter. But if there is a God, then logic says, reason says, wisdom says, it does matter how you live your life. It does matter what guides your life. It does matter where you turn to find meaning and fulfillment in your life. So let's unpack those words and their significance and what they mean. First of all, he says, fear God. And that's not, a, that's not a phobia. There's a range of meaning in every language. So there's never, you, you know, one-to-one translation usually because there's a range of meaning. But in the Hebrew, the word fear here, and at most of the places where it's being used, does not s- simply mean phobia, like you're afraid of spiders. Now, if your faith is not in Jesus Christ, then there is a, then there is a fear that's a phobia of death and of what's coming after, because there's no, uh, there's no certainty there. But for those of us who've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, there is no phobia of fear of death, and there is no phobia fear of God. The fear of God here in the Hebrew means, for those of us who are in Christ, to have an awe of God, to have a reverence for God and to worship God. So where it says, fear God, kids, in your Bibles, where it says, fear God, that means worship God. That's how he ends his book. He's like, worship God, be amazed by God. The whole chapter started in verse 1 with the words, remember your creator. Remember in the Hebrew, it doesn't simply mean to have something pop back into your mind. Oh, I remembered. That's not what it means. To remember something in the, not in, in the Hebrew culture, it means to have a conscious commitment to something. You're remembering it. It means to have deep consideration. You're remembering it. It means to have passionate fidelity. You're remembering it. That's what it means. So kids who are in here, you're like, what in the world does this mean? Let's explain, let's explain passionate fidelity, okay? Let's say you're a Toronto Maple Leafs fan. Let's say your parents are Toronto Maple Leafs fans. And let's say that a relative gives you an Ottawa Senators hat for Christmas. Are you going to wear it? No. Are your parents going to let you wear it? No. You're not going to wear it. Why? Passionate fidelity. That's what it means. It means like this unwavering commitment. It means like, I'm all about this. So how can I be about that? It's passionate fidelity. If you were running out of the house and your mom said, it's cold outside. It's, your ears are going to get cold at recess. You should probably put on a hat. And you turn and you look. And the closest hat to you is the Ottawa Senator's hat. And the hat that's 25 feet high in the largest closet ever constructed by man for children, inexplicably for this illustration, the Toronto Maple Leafs hat is at the top. Are you going to just put on the Ottawa Senators hat because it's easier? Or are you going to be like, my passionate fidelity for the Toronto Maple Leafs, I, it is with joy and great delight in my heart. It's not just duty to climb this bookshelf to put on the Toronto Maple Leafs hat. It's, I, I'm happy to do it. I can't think of anything else I'd rather do. 
And so you climb to the top, even though it's harder, but you do it. Why? Passionate fidelity. You're going outside, and the only hat there, the only one, is the Ottawa Center's hat. What do you do? You go to school, and your ears get cold. Why? Passionate fidelity. That's what it means. Fear God. Remember your creator. Have a sense of passionate fidelity. That's what the appeal is. Because it, for 12 chapters, he's appealing to logic. Right? He's like, if there's no God, it doesn't matter. Do whatever you want. Raise your kids to do whatever they want. It's not relevant. Oh, well, hold on a second, preacher. It is relevant because we're leaving the world a better place. What? In a billion years, it's not relevant. None of it's relevant. If there's no God and there's no judgment, then nobody's paying for anything after they die. It doesn't matter. Well, hold on. But then society would go into anarchy and it's better for us. Okay, great. But a billion years from now, it still doesn't matter. A thousand years from now, 5,000, 10,000 years from now, it doesn't matter. You can rise to be the Prime Minister of Canada tomorrow and in 10,000 years, your name will be a footnote at the bottom of a textbook, maybe if you're lucky. So don't drone on about legacy and things, Matt. Don't drone on about it. World history says we're forgotten. You don't know the names of your great-great-great-grandparents and you're not living your lives on the basis of their core values. You don't remember them. You won't remember, be remembered either. That's the provoking tone of Ecclesiastes. We don't like it. You don't like it. As I was saying that, something inside you was like, oh, wait a minute. No, I totally disagree. I'm totally important. In a thousand years, of course, I've been living according to my core values. No, they won't. They will not. So it's provoking, our, it's provoking us to stare at our smallness so that we marvel at God's greatness so that our hearts can be curved out so we can experience a true sense of peace and joy and fulfillment in life that transcends the horrors of our mortality and of getting old. It's curving us out. This is the goal uh, of this text and the direction that it takes us. And so if there is a God, then worshiping him and having a sense of awe, awe of him and remembering him and wanting to align our hearts and our minds to be congruent with him, that's, that's a rational response. See, the bad news is we're not born wanting to do that. And the bad news is that even after we place in our faith in Christ, our hearts still wander from wanting to do that. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. The good news in all this is that Christ did that. He precisely did that. Jesus of God was perfect. Jesus remembered God perfectly. Jesus committed to the ways of God perfectly. Jesus walked out the grace of God perfectly. And when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, he unites himself to you and he gives his record of perfection to you. And that scandal of grace is the very foundation of Christianity and it is that Jesus Christ is enough and we're with him. So when this text ends and says, fear God and keep his commands, if it were not for Jesus Christ, that would be terrifying. Because how are you doing with a passionate fidelity for God in terms of like loving and trusting in him only and loving your neighbor as much as you love yourself? We don't. We have moments when we do and we can celebrate those moments, but by and large, we don't. But Jesus Christ did and united to him, his perfection is enough, which enables this text to not be crushing, but to actually be a text that is guiding for us. Because it goes on to say, and keep his commandments. In Matthew chapter 22, all of the commandments of God are summarized. The Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, right? Because we, as children of God, we want to we re, you know, reflect our Father. So let's all quote Exodus 20 together. Ready? I am the God that led you out of Egypt. First commandment. Just kidding. I'm joking. You see, the, the, Jesus summarized the law in Matthew 22, and he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
And when he summarized it, he wasn't summarizing it to make it easier. He was summarizing it to show how poignant it is. He said, on, on that, you can hang all of the law and all of the prophets. You can hang the entire scripture on that, those two things. Love God with everything and love your neighbor as much as yourself. The dilemma is that we don't, and the good news is that Jesus does. And so, we're, you know, we're not called sheep because we're cute. You know, we're called sheep because we wander. But the good news of the gospel is that we're not saved on the basis of our faithful grip on God. We're saved on the basis of the grace and the strength of God's faithful grip on us. Your kids are not saved on the basis of their strong grip on Jesus. Your kids will be saved on the basis of Jesus' strong grip on your kids. So that they will turn and return to him. And they will remember their creator. Even if today they're nowhere nowhere close to that. This is our prayer. This is our hope. That even when we don't remember God, God remembers us. This is the picture of the cross. This is his mercy. This is his grace. That at the cross, Christ was forgotten so that in our dilemma and anxiety and frustration and sin and wanderings of life, God won't forget us. He'll remember us. This is the goodness of his covenant. And so the very final verse of Ecclesiastes, the very final verse, it's like Solomon's mic drop on the smallness of humanity and the greatness of divinity. Because the very final verse he says, for God will bring every deed into judgment, even the secret things, whether good or evil. When he drops his mic and he walks away. Now, if it were not for Jesus Christ, how terrifying would that verse be? It's terrifying without Jesus, but it's liberating with him. See, the bad news is that a God who is perfectly loving and perfectly just gave us free will and we used our free will to do things that are unloving and unjust. And so God is the only one qualified to judge and all of us will appear before the great judge. That would be the bad news. That is the bad news. But here's the good news. The good news is that in an unimaginably gracious contradiction of what you deserve, Everything that God requires for you in his law, he has already provided for you in his grace, which is why Jesus Christ himself said, and I quote in John 5, 22, Jesus said, God the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. In other words, at the end of time, when you stand before the judge, The one who is judging you is the one who justified you by going to cross for you, dying for you, who already took the punishment for your sin from you, gave his righteous record to you. Your judge is your justifier. Jesus said that. And so in the end, God will judge every thought, every word, and every deed. But united to Christ, you have been given his righteous record of perfect thoughts, of perfect words, of perfect deeds. None of us are loving and righteous enough to stand innocent before the judge, but Christ is enough and we're in him and that's the gospel. So now, Christ has fulfilled all things. So how do we live in light of this? Well, in light of the wonder of his grace, we worship God. What else could we possibly do? We worship God. We live in awe of God. We love God, our neighbors, and we endeavor to keep God's commandments. We raise our kids to worship God. We raise our kids to live in an awe of God. We raise our kids to love their neighbor and endeavor to keep God's commandments. Why? Not because we, 
Not because the life we live is an attempt to escape God's judgment, but because the life we now live is animated by our amazement of God's grace. In Jesus Christ at the cross, we've already received our judgment, and the verdict is not guilty. Christ has done it all. His final words on the cross were, it is finished. So the love of God and neighbor is a perfect description of Jesus, the Lord of grace. The command to love God and neighbor calls us to imitate Jesus, the Lord of grace. And we've been adopted and we're able to call God Father because of Jesus, the Lord of grace. So what else can we do but live with passionate fidelity? Loving God and keeping his commands to bear the family resemblance is precisely what the children of grace want to do.